Please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 24 with me. Luke chapter 24, we're looking at verses 50 through 53 this morning. As you do so, just a couple reminders of things we may have talked about already, you've seen already this morning. Uh, In a few weeks, in October, we're going to be holding a a baptismal service, Lord willing, and so we'd love for uh, you to participate in that if you've not already been baptized and have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. We'd love to see uh, you have the ability to participate in that, and so please uh, contact us in the church office this week or in the next uh, few weeks about that, and love to talk with you more about uh, being obedient to the Lord in, in that area. Also, for those of you who are newer to the church and would like to find out some more information about Bethany, I encourage you to participate in Bethany 101. This is a class that tells you a little bit about the church. It's also a church, that, uh, also a class that we ask people who are wanting to become members of the church to go through first. And we're doing Bethany 101 a little bit different this time. It's going to be held during this hour as part of Ben Davidson's Sunday School. And so Ben Davidson's Sunday School class is just, if you walk out the theater here and kind of go to your right, it's the first classroom on your right. And so I encourage you to uh, be a part of that. So let's look at Luke chapter 24, and as you do so, as you turn there, just a reminder too that this morning we're celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And so we're going to be talking about who Jesus is, and I encourage you as you think about who Jesus is, your hearts would be being prepared for partaking of the Lord's Supper together as a community of faith this morning. So uh, Luke chapter 24, and if you would stand with me in honor of God, if you're able, as we read his word together, the last four verses of the Gospel of Luke. We've just seen Jesus appearing to his disciples. We've seen some of his last words, his encouragement to them as they are witnesses, and then verse 50. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. You may be seated. May you be encouraged through what we read and find out about Jesus this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these concluding words to your gospel We pray that we would consider them carefully. We thank you for the person of Jesus, his work in our lives, and allow our hearts to be transformed by him. Help us to rightly grasp who he is and live in obedience to who he is with with great love and joy and worship. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. I felt a little bit nostalgic This week, as I've been preparing to to conclude the Gospel of Luke, I was taking the books that are on my desk that kind of deal with the Gospel of Luke, those commentaries, and was they've been sitting on my desk for three and a half years, and so I was picking them up and putting them back on the the bookshelf. And there's a little bit of sadness as I do that. I felt like Andy in the movie Toy Story, where he kind of puts his toys away, and I wonder are my books like on the bookshelf sad and kind of talking to each other. Anyway, uh, I, I, I ran some numbers, so kind of thinking through this statistically, and 
uh, realized that we've, we've preached about 145, 146 messages in the Gospel of Luke, so, so quite a few. And I, I realized, as I kind of did the math, that that's about a, a little less than eight verses a week, around eight verses a week. And at that pace, I realized, you know, taking into account special occasions and different special series and, you know, my lengthy vacation schedule, uh, you take into account all those things, we're looking at about, at that pace, uh, 27 or 28 years to go through the whole New Testament, which is every expository preacher's dream. You know, can I make it through the New Testament? I'm thinking, well, hold on, hold on. I, I began at 31, 27, 28 years, that's 58, 59. I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty doable. I, I can go through it twice at that pace. And then I did the math a little bit more and realized, okay, well, wait a minute. When I went through Ephesians, our first book, uh, I did less than four verses a week. Um, so, so all I have to say, we're going to be adding half an hour to each Sunday morning. No, no I, we'll see what God does. Uh, you know, who, who knows how long uh, health, you know, and all those things that, that God will allow. But, you know, it's, I'm trying to sign a 28-year contract with the elders right now. So pray for those negotiations, and we'll see how that goes. Uh, I did this little uh, word cloud. Maybe you saw it this week. I'll put it up on the blog, Lord willing, uh, tomorrow and stuff. But this, this was kind of, I took all the manuscripts that I had, all the sermon manuscripts, all those uh, computer files, and I put them into one document and did a little wordlet, a little word cloud of them. And you see kind of the major themes of the Gospel of Luke coming, coming out there. Obviously, God and Jesus and Christ, his interaction with people. You see the, the kingdom there and and sin. I'll, I'll put this up so you can see it a little more closely. It's kind of interesting to me to see these, these themes that we spent three and a half years or so talking about kind of, kind of come to the forefront, and I hope it's been an encouraging study to you. It's certainly been an encouraging study for me and, and transformed a lot about how I live and how I think about Jesus and, and his church. As we go through these verses this morning, I want us to deal with these verses, and then I also want us to spend some time dealing with the, the major themes as we leave the Gospel of Luke, the major themes that have consumed our time as we've thought about who Jesus is. And there's two questions, as we do those two things, there's two questions that I want us to ask, and let's go ahead and dive into the first question this morning. The first question that I want us to ask as we come to the end of the Gospel of Luke is, do the disciples grasp who Jesus is? Do the disciples grasp who Jesus is? is. As we've gone through the gospel of Luke, we've seen who Jesus is is a very important question. We've seen people grapple with it. We've seen some people reject who he is. We've seen other people accept. We've seen, though, even the people who accept who Jesus is struggle to really understand what that means. And I, I think no other group or no group uh, illustrates this more than the disciples. And so, in fact, we're going to kind of turn around through the Gospel of Luke this morning, and, and so you can either follow along or we'll go too fast. That's all right. But uh, if you turn back to Luke chapter 9, there's a, a great example of that. Uh, as we see the disciples struggle to understand who Jesus is, in Luke chapter 9, there's this amazing story of the transfiguration of Jesus beginning in Luke 9, 28. Hopefully you remember whenever we went through that. It says that Jesus takes Peter and John and James and he goes up to the mountain to pray. And, and as Jesus is praying, Luke tells us that he's transfigured. The appearance of his face is altered. His clothing became dazzling white. And so uh, Jesus begins to manifest in, in a physical way, in a visible way, the glory that he has always possessed. And he's doing that in front of Peter, James, and John. And, and as he does so, 
There's two men that are with him, Moses and Elijah. And verse 31 says, they appeared in glory and they spoke of his departure. Those are the things that are about to take place in Jerusalem, that the things that you and I have been looking at over the last few weeks and are culminating today. Peter wakes up and he sees what's taking place. He kind of becomes fully alert. And everyone looks and they see, well, there's Jesus, there's Moses and Elijah. And somehow they realize who who Jesus is talking to, and as they make that realization, as they come to that awareness, Peter comes up with a a very poor suggestion. Master, he says in verse 33, let's build three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not realizing what he's saying. In other words, Peter, even as he sees Christ transfigured, doesn't recognize the uniqueness of Jesus and his ministry. He doesn't grasp it. And throughout the Gospel of Luke, we we see these instances where Jesus describes his ministry or some aspect of his ministry is revealed to him, and and the disciples show this this mind-numbing ignorance. You go back to Luke 22, and in Luke 22, there's Jesus is, is talking about what's going to take place. He says, I'm about to suffer. This is Luke twenty two sixteen. I will not eat of it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And, and he, he talks about what's going to take place, and he talks about this new covenant. And as he says this, and he's talking about his sacrifice, and, uh, and as he's instituting the Lord's Supper, they begin to argue about who's the greatest, Jesus reveals himself as the suffering servant, as the suffering Messiah, and the disciples completely miss it and begin arguing about who's the best. Over and over again, we could give many examples of the disciples not getting it, not grasping who Jesus is. Well, now we come to the last four verses in the Gospel of Luke. And so the question is do they get it yet? After Jesus has opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, as we saw last week, now do they grasp who he is? Let's look at the text here. Jesus has been busy from Easter Sunday to this time of the Ascension has been about 40 days. In Acts, we read it's about 40 days. In 1 Corinthians 15, we read that Jesus appears to to people throughout this this 40-day period. He appears to the women. He appears to uh, Peter. He appears to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He appears to the ten disciples minus Thomas. He appears to the eleven disciples with Thomas included. First Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that there's one time where he appears to over 500 people at once. And so Jesus has been engaged in this ministry of preparing people as he leaves, as he prepares to leave in between Easter and his ascension. Now, in verse 50, it says that he takes his disciples, he takes those who are with him, and he he takes them out to Bethany that's on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And so he's there on the Mount of Olives, this little village near Bethany, or somewhere near this village of Bethany. And Luke tells us this, this very beautiful picture here. It says, lifting up his hands, he blessed them. 
And as he's blessing them, while he's in the process of blessing him, he, he begins to ascend. He parts from them and is carried up into heaven. And, and Luke doesn't give us much more of a description of that. But somehow, as he's, as he's removed from him, in that process of being removed from the disciples, he engages in blessing them. I wonder if in our culture we can really understand what a, a blessing is. There's that very famous blessing in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 6 where Aaron and his sons are to say to the people, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord's countenance be upon you and and give you peace. That's something that Aaron and his sons were to say to the people. A blessing is not some magical formula that a a person says to another person to, to make God take care of them, but rather a blessing in Scripture is something that that we see a person do to entrust another person to the care and protection of God. At night, I'll check on my children before I go to sleep. I'll walk into Hannah's room first. She's kind of the, the first door I come to on the right, and so I'll open it up, and I'll kind of listen, you know, do I, do I hear breathing, you know, do I, do, I, do I hear her stirring, do I know she's okay, and I'll kind of go, I'll tiptoe in, and, you know, I'll give her a real quick uh, kiss on the forehead, and, and, and then I'll go and I'll, I'll check on the boys, and, and the boys, uh, they think they're quite funny. Uh, if I go in and they're still awake, they'll pretend to be asleep until I get right up next to them to give them a kiss, and they'll go, Dad, I'm awake, and, uh, you know, ha, 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 hilarious. Uh, and, you know, then we go, then I go in to check on Ellie, and Ellie's, uh, Ellie, like, lives on Mount Everest. There's, you know, it's this huge, this very tall uh, bunk bed that has very tiny rails, and so you have to, like, you can't just kind of peek up and see if she's there. You have to cl- literally like climb up into on, on top of the bed and look down, and she's uh, like half gopher, and you have to kind of where did she go and, and find her, and and th- and then finally you find her. It's like a little treasure hunt. Um, but as I as I see each ch- child at night, get ready to to go. Often I'll, I'll I'll pray for them. Right, we've prayed together when they're awake. But but as I leave, kind of last thing I want want to do in the evenings for them is, is pray. And, and I pray for them because I recognize that in and of myself, I don't have the ability to take care of them. And so I entrust them to the care of God. Jesus, as he leaves his disciples here, prays for them. He, he blesses them. And we don't know exactly what he says, but I imagine he says something similar or covers some similar themes as he covered in, in John chapter 14 as he was talking to the disciples. And and he's told the disciples in John 14, he says, I'm going to ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. I will not leave you as orphans, he says in verse 18. I will come to you let a little while more and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. He's, he's talking about this, this fellowship that's going to exist. And he says, look, I, I know I'm leaving, but it's not like I'm, I'm leaving you by yourselves. There's going to be a helper and, and I'm going to be in you and, and you're going to be in me. There's going to be this, this continued relationship. Peace I leave with you, he says in John 14, 27. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And so Jesus, as he leaves the disciples here, is, is not 
just abandoning them. He's not saying, well, good luck, guys. I'll catch you on the flip side. He's, he's leaving. He's ascending. But as he ascends and as he leaves, he blesses them. He entrusts them to the care of God the Father and of himself and the Holy Spirit. And I believe those are some of the things that he says to them as he departs. What, by the way, I think this is important to think about too as we, as we kind of conclude these first two verses, 50 and 51. I think a really important question to ask and to think about is, okay, well, as he ascends, as he leaves, what next? What does he, he leave to do? What we see as we look through Scripture and we see what Jesus is, is doing. Luke, Luke uh, earlier in Luke, Jesus would say that he's going to be going, he's going to be seated at the right hand of, of God. Hebrews chapter 1, we see something about his continued ministry. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That idea that he, he um, upholds the universe by the word of his powers is present tense. Jesus ascends to the Father, and, and he, he sits down at the right hand of the Father. There's completed work, and he continues his ministry as sovereign God upholding the entire universe. And so that's something Jesus is, is currently doing as king. But also we see that, that Jesus has a ministry in our lives that continues. In fact, if you look over the book of Hebrews, Hebrews is, is past the, the T books in the New Testament, past a little book called Philemon. You, you come to Hebrews and in Hebrews chapter 7, the writer tells us something more about Jesus' ministry as well. He says, he talks about Jesus as a guarantor of a better covenant. That's Hebrews 7, 22. Verse 23, 7:23. the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. There were a lot of priests. They kept dying. But Jesus, he says in verse 24, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus continues in his role as priest, interceding for us before the Father. It says in verse 1 of Hebrews 8, now, point and what we're saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Jesus continues in his ministry in our lives by interceding to us, by, by declaring us righteous before God as he reminds God of, of the sacrifice that he made for us, that, that we have a righteousness that is not from us, but from him. It's part of his continued ministry. So here's the picture as we conclude the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is ascending to heaven. He's leaving his disciples. And as he leaves, he blesses them. He entrusts them to the care of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 
Now, all throughout the Gospel of Luke, the disciples have missed it. What about now? Let's look at the last two verses of the Gospel of Luke. It says, as he's carried up into heaven, how do they respond? And they worshipped him. It's the first time in the Gospel of Luke we see the disciples worshipping Christ unambiguously. Very clear here. They worship him. And unlike a few weeks earlier, whenever they were despondent as they thought about Jesus leaving them, as they were filled with despair and sorrow, now there's joy. Jesus is still removed from them physically. The, 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 the person of Jesus Christ in the flesh is, is no longer with them, but, but now there's a greater grasp of who he is. Even though before he had told them, look, this is all according to God's word, this is what's going to happen, and indeed everything Jesus says is going to happen, happen. The disciples, even though he had warned them that all that would happen, they're despondent, they're despairing, they don't grasp who he is. Now, because he's opened their minds to understand the scriptures, they get it. The response of every person who rightly understands who Jesus is, is worship. And the disciples, they, they, they return to Jerusalem. There, there's joy, not sorrow. And it says that they are continually in the temple blessing God. By the way, notice something. Luke ends his gospel right where he began it. It began in the temple with Zechariah. He ends in the temple with the disciples blessing God. It's such a profound and beautiful picture here. And I believe that if we who are part of the community of, of faith understood the picture here, it would change dramatically how we relate to one another. It would change our commitment levels to one another and our understanding of relationship with one another. Here, Christ, our head, blesses his disciples and, and they have this unity that exists only in the person of Jesus Christ. Do the disciples grasp who Jesus is? Of course they're going to continue to understand who he is more fully, but, but I believe the essential answer is yes, they understand who he is because they respond in worship. All the things that Christ has said are, are now fulfilled, and they respond by worshiping. A lot of questions are left as we conclude, Luke. What's going to happen with the Jews? What's going to happen with the Romans? What's going to happen with his followers? And, and Acts will answer all those questions, but what we see here is that one of the most essential questions in the Gospel of Luke, do people know who Jesus is, that, that overarching question is now answered, yes. The disciples grasp who Jesus is, finally. Now here's our second question for the morning, right? <laughs> the second question that I want us to consider together is, do we grasp who Jesus is? Do we grasp who Jesus is? How many of you were uh, here or were, were part of, of our, our fellowship whenever we began looking at the Gospel of Luke? How many of you were here for the first Sunday that we covered the Gospel of Luke? Okay. So not, okay, I'm seeing 17%. Okay. And how many of you were not here? How many of you were not here whenever we began going through the Gospel? Okay, so, so quite a few. As we began uh, going, and I'm kind of worried, are you going to leave? 
whenever we finish the Gospel of Luke. Um, Gospel of Luke, part two. Um, whenever we began the series, the first Sunday that we began looking at the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter one, verse one, we, I asked this question. I said, um, essentially, how do you know that the Jesus you are worshiping is the right Jesus? I mean, everybody's got a Jesus we talked about as we, we looked at the Gospel of Luke, as we began to. We said, look, you know, the skeptic has his or her Jesus. The skeptic's Jesus is a Jesus that, that doesn't perform miracles. He wasn't resurrected from the dead. He was kind of a moral teacher. You, you've heard all about the skeptic's Jesus. The Muslims have a Jesus. The Muslim Jesus is, a, again, a great prophet. The Muslim Jesus is very nice to his mom. He treats Mary well. But the Muslim Jesus very clearly says, I'm not God, and I'm not the Son of God. And the Muslim Jesus doesn't die on the cross. Judas dies on the cross instead. The, the Muslims have a Jesus. What makes the Jesus that, that you believe any, any better than the Muslim Jesus? We talked about the Mormon Jesus. Mormons have a Jesus, and, and he's... Uh, more in line with what we would say Jesus is, but the Mormon Jesus doesn't die on the cross in a sacrificial way in the sense that, that we can place our trust in him alone and receive salvation. His, his work is not sufficient, all sufficient for salvation. So the, the Mormons have a Jesus. There's a vending machine Jesus that exists in our culture today. A person may say, you know what, uh, I kind of keep Jesus off to the side, and then when I need something, I go to this Jesus, vending machine Jesus, and I press, you know, B1, and, and out comes whatever it is that I'm praying for. There, there's kind of a vending machine Jesus. He kind of doesn't affect my life too much, but when I need him, he's there. There's a kind of an evangelical Christian Jesus sometimes that we, we lull ourselves into believing in and, and worshiping. And this evangelical Jesus sometimes is kind of this Americanized Jesus where he's Maybe he's real conservative in his politics, he's against abortion, he's against homosexuality or these other social issues, but he doesn't really have that much to say about how we handle our finances. He's cool with greed, you know. Or maybe there's this liberal Jesus who's, who doesn't care about moral issues, but is, is really concerned with, with social justice and things like that. And the question I asked you is, are you willing, as we go through the Gospel of Luke, to compare whatever conception of Jesus you have with what Scripture tells us about Jesus. Are you willing to look at the Gospel of Luke with me and compare your conception of Jesus with who God says Jesus is in the Gospel of Luke? And are you willing to do away with your idolatrous Jesus and come to a closer conception of who Jesus is in His Word? And what I want to do is I want to look at a couple things about Jesus that I hope that you've seen as we've gone through the Gospel of Luke. As we leave Luke, here are some things that I want to make sure that we grasp as we consider who Jesus is. And, and you know, obviously trying to summarize all of Luke in just, uh, you know, 10 or 15 minutes, it's going to be a little bit tough. And I know what some of you are thinking, Daniel, why didn't you just do this to begin with? Please, uh, please be a little more respectful, a little nicer to me. Uh, let's just do this together, and uh, hopefully you're encouraged as we see what's, what's taking place here in the Gospel of Luke. So a couple things that I, I want you to grasp about Jesus. If you don't grasp these things about Jesus from the Gospel of Luke, you've missed it. First, number one, here's what you must understand. Jesus is establishing God's kingdom. This comes through 
crystal clear as we look at the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is establishing God's kingdom. You look at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke chapter 1, and, and, and Gabriel appears to, to Mary, and what does he say about Jesus? Is he's telling her about this, this child that's going to be born. It says that he's going to be great. He's going to be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is not just some, some prophet being born. This is a a king, and not just any king, it's, it's the king. It's a king of a, that's going to reign over a kingdom with no end. And in every aspect of Jesus' birth narrative and his, his infancy narrative and his childhood, we, we see this, this kingship of Jesus described. A few years ago, I was helping my parents kind of clean out the garage and their house a little bit, and I came across one of my dad's old journals and was kind of flipping through it and found that it was a journal from 1977, and thought, oh, this is, I can't wait, I'm going to find my, my birthday on here, and I was looking at all the entries my dad had for other things, and, you know, paragraph or two on, on things about going on in work, kind of a work journal, and so I, I came to September 1st, 1977, my, my birthday, and, and uh, looked at the entry, and it said, son born, Daniel. It's like, like Dad, not even an exclamation mark or something? Like a little smiley face? You know, so, ah, it's just a work journal. Yeah, but still. As we come to Jesus' birth, it's not, it's not a minor entry. There's this, there's this idea that a king is being born, and Jesus is establishing a, a kingdom. He's establishing God's kingdom. Now, again, we don't have time to go into everything, but here's, here's four thoughts that I want you to think about as we think about Jesus establishing God's kingdom. Number one, what I want you to see is that God's kingdom has a different ethical system. Jesus is establishing God's kingdom, and as he comes and he describes his kingdom, what, what comes through, what we must understand, is that God's kingdom has a different ethical system. The way that we are to view others and to view God and to live our lives is substantially different than the way that our culture would say we are to live and to view others and to live our lives. For example, Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, we see the sermon on the plain. And as we look at the sermon on the plain, Jesus begins to describe this, this ethical system. And in their culture, the poor would be considered cursed, and the wealthy would be considered to receive God's blessing. He says, nope, other way around. Blessed are the poor, woe to the rich. Blessed are the hungry, woe to those who are full now. Blessed are the weeping, woe to those who laugh now. And then he goes on in Luke chapter 6, verse 27, I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. He is turning their culture's ethical system on its head. Jesus is establishing God's kingdom, and as he proclaims God's kingdom, the first thing I want you to see and remember is that this kingdom has a different ethical system. The second thing that I think is important for us to think about as we think about Jesus establishing God's kingdom is that all other kingdoms are going to be crushed. 
as Jesus establishes God's kingdom, he's not saying, hey, just FYI, establishing a kingdom here. You can kind of keep your little kingdom on the side and we'll coexist. We'll have the big God kingdom and your little kingdom's all over the place. He says, no. There's a kingdom coming. And all other kingdoms are going to be crushed and and consumed and obliterated. And it will be God's kingdom alone that stands. As we encounter the religious leaders, we we encounter people who cling to their own kingdom. Uh, I love Luke chapter 13. Maybe remember remember when we went through Luke chapter 13 and we saw this, this, uh, this, this time where Jesus is describing his kingdom and he's He's talking about, the, uh, about how other kingdoms are, kingdoms are going to, to fall in comparison to that. As he describes the kingdom, he describes it as a mustard seed and leaven. It's, it's growing, it's expanding. As you come over, go, go back to Luke chapter 10, I'm sorry, uh, let's see, Luke chapter 11 in Luke chapter 11, he's, he's encountering this, this dialogue with the Pharisees and the lawyers, and, and the Pharisees are, are talking about, you, you see the Pharisees so consumed with their own kingdom, Luke 11, and, and Jesus begins to confront them on their failure to rightly understand who God is and, and, and what God is ultimately concerned about. And you see that the Pharisees are clinging to a kingdom that's going to be crushed, and I, I, love, I love verse 45. The lawyers hear what Jesus is saying, and they say, uh, Teacher, just a little, just so you know, you want to be a little careful here because as you're criticizing them, you're kind of hurting our feelings a little bit. You, you want to be careful. Bad idea. Jesus says, Glad you brought it up. I have a couple things to share with you, too. Woe to you. And then he goes off and obliterates them. How terrible would it be for us at Bethany to say, oh, hey, Jesus, by the way, as we've gone through the Gospel of Luke, be careful because you're kind of messing up Bethany community's kingdom too. And Jesus would say, woe to you, Bethany community. Woe to you, Daniel. Woe to you, whoever, if you're trying to establish a kingdom that is in opposition to me. All other kingdoms get crushed. We also see, as we look at the Gospel of Luke, that the kingdom is already here and yet not here. In Luke 17, for example, Jesus is asked by the Pharisees, okay, tell us about the signs of the kingdom. He says, look, the, the kingdom's already here. It's, it's already in your midst. It's like that, that mustard seed, and it's growing, it's expanding. And, and then he goes on, he says, and it's future, and, and here are the signs of the kingdom in the future. So there's, there's a sense in which the kingdom of God is, is here, and there's a sense in which the kingdom of God is not yet here. And then last week, a fourth thing to think about Jesus and this, his establishment of his kingdom, not only is there a different ethical system, not only will it crush all of the kingdoms, not only is this kingdom that he is establishing here and not yet here, the fourth thing is we are ambassadors of this kingdom that he is establishing. As he's removed, we become the ones who are witnesses to it, who proclaim it. Jesus is establishing God's kingdom. Here's the second thing I want you to think about as we think about the gospel of Luke, as we leave the gospel of Luke, and I don't want us to to miss this as we think about Jesus. The second thing is that Jesus 
is offering the opportunity to participate in his kingdom. Jesus doesn't just come and say, okay, there's a kingdom coming. I just wanted everyone to know, and you can't be a part of it. It's my kingdom. Nobody else's kingdom, and thank you for listening. He offers the opportunity to participate in the kingdom. He offers the opportunity for those who have been separated from God to be reconciled to God. A couple things. Again, I want to just kind of offer four thoughts about this offer that Jesus makes to participate in his kingdom. Number one, we have to understand this. Number one, we have to understand that the kingdom, participation in the kingdom, cannot be purchased by works. Participation in the kingdom of God that Jesus offers cannot be purchased through works. It can't be purchased through legalism. As we look at Luke chapter 13, for example, there's this, there's this amazing picture of this woman with a disabling spirit, and Jesus is teaching in the synagogue in Luke chapter 13, and a, a woman comes to him, and she's had this, this disabling spirit, and she's had it for 18 years, and Jesus heals her, and, and she's made straight, and she begins to glorify God. And the ruler of the synagogue, the person whose kingdom is threatened, and instead of being excited about that, he's, he's, he's indignant. And he tells everyone, hey guys, six days to get healed. Okay, this is the Sabbath. No healing, no miracles on the Sabbath. Jesus responds, you hypocrites. Ought not this woman, he says in verse 16, a a daughter of Abraham whom Satan bound for 18 years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he says these words, they they make so much sense that this this ruler and his, his adversaries are put to shame. The kingdom of God cannot be purchased by works. Legalistic efforts to to purchase the kingdom of God are going to be completely and totally and utterly ineffective. You cannot obtain the kingdom of God through legalism. It's why in uh, Luke chapter 18, in Luke, I believe it's Luke chapter 18, you encounter this this Pharisee and a, a tax collector. And the Pharisee talks about all his, his wonderful works and, and assumes that he's righteous before God. He thanks God that he's not like this, this tax collector. And the tax collector stands before God. And as he prays, he says, look, just be merciful to me, a sinner. He throws himself upon the mercy of God. And Jesus tells us it's the tax collector who's justified. It's the tax collector who's seen as as righteous before God. When we called the series Savior of the Outcast, Savior of the Outcast, the kingdom cannot be purchased by works. The second thing I want you to see about the kingdom is that the kingdom is obtained by grace through faith. It can't be purchased by works. It's obtained by God's grace through faith. The people who are in the kingdom are not the people you might think that are in the kingdom. It's not the Pharisee, it's the tax collector. It's it's not the person who's viewed as righteous in the community. It's the woman who is 
weeping and her tears and this precious ointment are covering the feet of Jesus as she washes his feet with her hair. That person is in the kingdom. That person's sins are forgiven because they come to God by faith, trusting in his grace, not their works. If you do not grasp this about the person of Jesus, you've missed the Jesus of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus says, come to me. Uh, His invitation of salvation is open to all. Those who come to him recognize that they cannot work to earn his favor. They can simply place themselves at his mercy. They enter the kingdom by God's grace through faith. But that brings up another thing about participation in the kingdom, a third thought that if if you don't grasp this, you haven't grasped the gospel of Luke and Jesus either. A third thing is that repentance and its fruit are inseparable from true faith. Repentance and its fruit are inseparable from true faith. Think about the story of of Levi in Luke chapter 5. It says that Jesus goes out and he sees this tax collector named Levi, and, and Levi's sitting at the tax booth, and Jesus says to him, follow me, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Remember when we looked at that story, we, we thought about who Levi was and how he'd clung to these, these treasures, he'd clung to this money, and whenever Jesus says, follow me, there's no works that Levi does, but, but as, he, as he turns to Jesus, he turns away from these things that he had been holding so, so precious. At the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 3, as people come to, to John the Baptist and ask, what do we do? He, he talks about repentance, and we talked about how repentance is not some work we do, but it's, it's understanding the reality of sin. It's, it's having an emotional reaction against that sin, saying, I no longer desire this, and it's turning to faith in the person of, of Jesus Christ alone. In the Gospel of Luke, a person who places their faith in Jesus Christ is a person who's repentant and a person who manifests the fruit of repentance in their life. It's why you look at Luke chapter 18 and you see the rich young ruler and the rich ruler refuses to to turn to Jesus Christ and to leave everything and follow Christ. And then you come to the next chapter in Luke chapter 19 and you see Zacchaeus, a true follower, and he says, you know what, all this stuff is is useless in comparison with the person of Jesus Christ. And so he repents and he places his faith in Christ. The fruit of that is manifested in his life. Brings up the fourth thing about Jesus and his offer to participate in the kingdom. Not only can it not be purchased by works, not only is it obtained by grace through faith, not only is is repentance inseparable from that faith, but the fourth thing that I want you to grasp is that the cost of discipleship reflects the value of Christ in the Gospel of Luke. If you look at Luke chapter 9, you see something about the cost of discipleship. In Luke 9, Jesus tells those who are following him, and says, look, you want to call yourself your, my disciple? You want to come and follow me? This is Luke chapter 9, verse 23. 
if you want to come after me, let, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Later in the chapter, someone will come along the road and, and says to him in verse 57, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, look, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And so forth. We see in the Gospel of Luke that those who are going to follow him must understand the cost of discipleship. Luke chapter 14. If anyone comes to me, Jesus says, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sister, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Count the cost. Why does Jesus say those things? Why in the gospel of Luke must the cost of discipleship be so, so high? If it's true that all we have to do to, to enter into a relationship with God is to throw ourselves upon his grace and, and his mercy and to place our faith in Jesus, why does discipleship have to be so costly? If you don't understand this, you don't understand the Jesus of the gospel of Luke. The cost of discipleship must be so very, very high because the value of Jesus is infinitely high. The person who recognizes the value of Jesus will look at Jesus and will look at whatever else it is in their life and say, Jesus is more valuable. Family, Jesus, Jesus. Earthly treasure, Jesus, Jesus is higher. My life, Jesus. Jesus is higher. If you don't understand that, you don't understand Jesus. You don't understand his worth. Jesus offers the opportunity to participate in his kingdom to those who place their faith in him. And those who place their faith in him are those who have rightly recognized his value. Not that we're those who are going to perfectly live out the terms of our discipleship. But we're going to understand them, agree with them, Pursue them. Pursue him. Last, last thing as we think about who Jesus is. Jesus is the Christ. It's why he's so valuable. It's why he's the treasure. It's the, he's the Christ. Now, early in the Gospel of, of Luke, People would say that, you know, Peter, yeah, you're the Christ, Son of God, God, awesome. But they don't understand what those words mean. 
But here's what it means, and, and here's what's come to fulfillment in, in Luke 24. What it means is that, that all that the Old Testament says about God and his purposes and, and, and the Messiah is now culminated in the person of Jesus Christ. I, I get excited. I got, I got excited just writing this down uh, as I was thinking through this. What, what fulfillment means is that it means that he's God and he's worthy of all the worship and value and, and, the, and the treasure that you would have for God. You, you have that for Christ. Do we grasp who Jesus is? The disciples do, and they conclude the gospel of Luke with worship. And my prayer and my hope for the the community of faith here at Bethany Community Church, or wherever you're from, if you're here with us this morning, is that as you come to the end of the Gospel of Luke, you grasp who Jesus is and respond in the same way with worship. With worship recognizing that he is the the pearl of great price, the treasure of infinite value. May the worship that resulted from the disciples' grasp of who Jesus is be true of us as well.